Turn with me, if you would, to Luke 10 as we continue our series in the road less traveled. Great joy. This morning, our text really seeks to help us understand, believe, and live and experience biblical joy. As I dug into this text this week, I found myself pausing and studying deeper and deeper this subject of biblical joy, Uh, so much so that I found myself behind in what I really needed to communicate. Um, I I knew intuitively that my own mind and heart needed a reset about what the Scripture says about this powerful but short word, joy. So I found myself, honestly speaking, encouraged, convicted, equipped, and this text seemed to steady my heart. Now, the problem is what happens in the weeks to come as life hits, but if you're like me and you're walking through this world, which you are, that is filled with pain and fear and temporary joy and joylessness all around us, Could we all not use a good dose of biblical joy and what that looks like? I I think the picture I got in my mind this week is that as we walk in life, we are are on this tightrope over a very dangerous uh, um, valley that if we fall, we die. And so biblical joy is like, like handrails that automatically come and steady us for this journey, this side of heaven. I was so refreshed this week. So here's what we know about biblical joy, is that you and I were sort of hardwired for joy, that we were hardwired for pleasure from birth. We seek this desire in our hearts in nearly everything you and I do. It is the why behind the what, whether whether good or bad. Our natural bent is to be joy addicts and junkies. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, put it this way. He said, all men seek happiness, and that motive, this motive is at the root of every action we take. Even those who hang themselves are seeking happiness, although in a very wrong way. To this man, it's more pleasurable, there's more joy to be dead than alive. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, The Weight of Glory, puts it this way. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We, you and I, as humans, are way too easily pleased. Yet, I think intuitively, we know that we define joy by more than a moment. It is more than circumstances. Happiness is dictated by circumstances. Joy, one writer said, is more like a deep abiding. In in Theopedia, which is like an encyclopedia for for theological matters, it defines joy like this. A state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. 
And I love how Rick Warren defined joy. He said, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Isn't that good? Joy is the reason why so many have died a martyr's death in the cause of Christ and were content, confident, and assured as they did. Joy is why Jesus could go to the cross and say in Hebrews 2, for the joy that was set before him. John Piper puts it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you and I when we are experiencing joy in him. Plainly put, just so we know where we stand, when you and I are not experiencing what we're going to speak of this morning, what this text speaks of, biblical joy, it is our perspective that needs to change. This text, I think, does that for us this morning. So as we look at it big picture, here's what happens is... uh, Luke gives us three reasons that the disciples are experiencing joy. And then this really unique perspective of what gives Jesus joy. Very unique in all the scriptures this morning, those last few verses. So let's read our text this morning, starting in Luke 10, 17. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such as was your gracious will, for such as was your pleasure. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. As we look at the disciples' joy in verses 17 through 20, There's a little context here. Remember last week, Monty did such an incredible job speaking about the 72 72 disciples that had been sent out. And that text told us they had been sent out uh, to a vast harvest of souls. They were sent out like lambs among wolves. And in doing so, they would be rejected. They were sent out with no provision so that they would learn to depend on God that he would provide for them everything they needed in order to do what he had called them to do. Remember that whole context? Well, this ragtag group of very ordinary 
mostly no-name folks, <clears throat> are now returning from this mission, from this teaching time, and they gather back together. Now, I can imagine Jesus said, we don't know how long they were out on mission, but let's say eight weeks. Eight weeks, Jesus said, on eight weeks, October the uh, 29th, I want you to come back, meet me under the big olive tree down by the river, and we're going to have a little story time. And I want to hear all that God's been doing and teaching you. This is the context of what's happening here. And verse 17 tells us that they return from this missionary trip with joy. So what is it that gave the disciples joy from their trip as Jesus sent them out? The first reason is divine power, verses 17 and 18. So when they come back, they say, even the demons are subject to us, Lord, in your name. And they were joyous over that. You can imagine that this is sort of a new and overwhelming sense of reality to, to them. That they go out and they do what Jesus says and they see the Lord at work and demons being subject to them. Now when we define demons, we got to go back and we know, we know the Old Testament stories. A friendly reminder that one-third of the angels, angels fell along with Lucifer because of their pride, and those, those tens of thousands of angels became demons, and we know that they were thrown into the lake of fire forever. And so here we get this picture of what evangelism really is. Most of us shudder and are scared to death to share our faith, and sometimes it is because we don't know what's really happening Evangelism is the task of rescuing souls from the grip of demons, ripping them from the lap of the evil one, and accomplishing this, to accomplish this, Jesus delegated divine power to his disciples to give them and expand the evidence that he was indeed the Messiah. The key phrase here is in your name. None of those 72 had the power for demons to submit to them. There's no other power that makes demons submit. As followers of Christ, we are the instrument, think of this, that the Lord uses to break the grip of Satan on the lost. Now that's pretty motivating when it comes to sharing our faith. You and I bear the power of Christ over the forces of hell through sharing the gospel. Luke again writes this picture in Acts 28, 18. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. God makes you and I a minister. Think about how awesome that is. To rescue the souls of men from the shackles of Satan via the power of the gospel. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1.16, the verse that I've asked my wife to put on my tombstone if I die before her. So if she doesn't do it, let her have it, okay? 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now when you hear that, remind yourself, Sometimes we think our lives aren't, aren't worthy or our lives don't have meaning. And the scripture says very clearly, very ordinary people as we are, that we are made in the precious image of God, the most beautiful thing of all his creation. And secondly, 
that you and I as Christ followers matter because we're the instruments. Romans 10 says, how will they know unless there is a what? Preacher. Someone to tell that we loosen lost folks from the evil one. And then in verse 18, Jesus responds to the disciples' statement of joy. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, if we're really honest, if we're in a small group Bible study, a community group at our church, and we get to this verse, that study or that group can go south in a hurry, right? Somebody starts pontificating on what this means. What is Jesus saying here? Here's what he's doing. Jesus is jumping on the joy train. The word I saw is actually translated in the imperfect tense, and it says, I was watching. Jesus is saying, when y'all were out there proclaiming the kingdom of God, that the Messiah had come and forgiveness of sins is possible through him, when y'all were out there teaching that, I was watching. I was a spectator, and I saw what was happening. And when folks that heard you believed, Jesus says, here's what it looked like. It looked like that every soul that believed was ripped from the hands of Satan. And when I saw that, it was like this last grasp of the evil one to hold on, and it was like lightning, saved, saved. Jesus says, I was watching. In the heavenlies where you can't see, I can see. What a beautiful picture that is even for you and I as we're in this conversation with people. I had, a, uh, uh, I had some AT&T guys come by my house. Uh, Jay can attest to this and Joel can attest to this Friday night. And so I got to know these three guys Friday night and they had to come back Saturday as I switched over some of my internet services. And one guy came back. And me and him got in a conversation because the, the, the guy said, man, you, you the I actually said, you're the coolest pastor I ever met, man. I said, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I said, but you ain't met Phil Herndon, right? And they said, no, nah, we met him, man. He ain't any close. I said, right? So I invited him in, gave him something to eat, and I love these guys. But me and this guy got in a conversation, me and this one guy about Christ. And here's what was in my mind, this new picture. As we talked about Christ, that Jesus was a spectator and he's watching and he's watching hopefully the grip of the evil one let go. He knows. The mission of the 70 was but a preview of what was to come at the cross and resurrection where Satan would be defeated and his power overcome by Jesus' divine power. The second reason that the disciples are experiencing joy is divine protection, verse 19. When we come to verse 19, it, let me just read it for us quickly again to remind us. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. We, we run a real risk here of getting distracted by serpents, snakes, and scorpions, do we not? And, and when we go back to our small group, uh, our small group's going to have some struggle this week with these verses, Chad. We go back and uh, we read this verse. Immediately somebody goes, uh, uh, uh. 
I went to East Tennessee one time on vacation, and I visited this church and went in this church, and the pastor was handling rattlesnakes up there, and he was full of faith. And what they forget to tell you or like to tell you is if you go look on YouTube, you'll see many of those churches and read and hear and see those pastors getting bit and die. So, um, again, Jesus is speaking in a metaphorical sense here for demons. We know Satan very clearly is viewed as a serpent in the scripture. And Revelation 9 speaks of scorpions as demon-like. These are well-known symbols of evil. And even in this context, we know it's metaphorical. This is helpful. Like we need to be careful when we study the Bible. And this is how we're being careful as we look at it in context. It's metaphorical because Jesus, the verse right before that, used the metaphor like lightning falling from the what? Sky, from heaven. So Jesus is saying, I am the sovereign God of the universe and there's nothing to fear from the evil one if you are in Christ. He uses this phrase, nothing will harm you. And he means unless it goes through the sovereign hands and fingers of God in Christ. We think of that, our Old Testament picture of that is Job. Satan came after him, inflicted incredible pain and suffering on him, but we see that Satan had to do it by first getting permission. And when that happens in our life, it's not to harm us, but actually to refine us, to make us more like Christ, which God gets more glory from. As one writer said, as believers, we are immortal until our work and the mission is done. Now, I don't know about you, but we're going to have an equipping class on anxiety. And a lot of our anxiety, including my own, comes from this, you know, not that I don't know where I'm going, but just thinking about dying. What a great comforting truth that bring, can bring us great joy in the midst of this side of heaven. We are immortal until our work and the mission is done. And God is the sovereign one who actually decides that. This is in no way a blanket statement that we can ignore the physical dangers uh, here on earth. I, I don't want anybody in Fellowship Bible Church going to the National Zoo and break into the Copperhead Museum and start rolling around with copperheads, okay? Jesus is saying something so beautiful here. And so comforting. I will take care of you if you are in Christ and your harm is under my jurisdiction. Romans 8 says, I will use all that for your good. Romans 8, 28 and verse 29 says, so that you may be conformed into the image of his beloved son. Even like the apostles who suffered death for the cause of Christ, they still destroyed Satan's power because they rose from the dead. So we have divine power. The disciples are experiencing joy. We have divine protection. And now we have a divine promise that brings them incredible joy. Verse 20. So Jesus is enjoying the joy of his disciples. He, he, he says, man, they've realized that I've given them divine power. They've realized and are experiencing my divine protection. 
But here in verse 20, he gives them a warning or an important teaching point. Look at verse 20. Just make sure we're on the same page. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is a warning. This is a teaching time. Jesus is saying here, don't let the dramatic highs in ministry be the core foundation of your joy. I can stop right there and I can tell you some of my greatest highs in life have been in ministry. To see someone who is walking down a dark path of sin and they hear the gospel and repent. And they turn and weep and you see God do a transformative work in the years to come in their life. There's nothing more joyous. That's, that's what disciples have been seeing. But I can also tell you that the next day, life hits and the joy subsides. Jesus is saying, don't let the intoxication of God using you and protecting you be the number one source of your joy. Jesus is saying, make sure that any power you have that was given to you, it was delegated, and any protection you experience, which God ordained and arranged, not become the basis and core and foundation and heart of your joy. The reason is, if we continually make what is temporal, the source of our joy, it will be based upon the ebb and flow of our, our experience. The up and down of our experience. The foundation of solid, lasting, deep, rich, biblical joy. Jesus says is this, is knowing that in eternity past, God took your name and my name and wrote it in his book and it will be there for all of eternity future. When all hell is breaking loose in your life, literally, Jesus will point you back to this verse and truth. It is what where the disciples and apostles went as they were going to be killed. Right there. There it is. I will sing with joy, even though you slay me, Job says. Re Revelation on the flip side in Revelation 20:15 gives us the other side, the opposite side of joy, which is eternal torment. When someone's name is not written in the book. This is how important the book is. This is how important names being written in the book or not is. Revelation 20 says, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's chilling, folks. Jesus is saying, your joy comes that you know me. Now, here's what you and I know is true. Many of us, probably all of us at a time, much of the world we live in, they sell their souls, literally, to get their name in some kind of book. <laughs> I'm not saying being recognized for your hard work and expertise is wrong. Not at all. I am questioning the price that some of us or some of people pay to get their name written in a book. Whether it's sports, academics, 
medicine, the who's who or whatever. But when it comes to the book of eternal life, our name is there not based on our strength, our wisdom, our achievement, our ministry success, our gifting, our ability to articulate the gospel. But it's there because of God's strength of amazing grace on our behalf for us in Christ. And the result, Jesus is saying, when seen this way, when we see life this way, no matter what's happening around us, when this becomes the core and the center of all that life brings, you and I literally can have joy in the midst of it all. Jesus is saying this is where joy comes from. Jesus is really saying, fellas, I'm so glad you had a great time on that little missionary eight-week or so trip that I sent you out on. It really does give me great joy to see your faithfulness to the mission. Gives me great joy to see you experience my power in new and fresh ways. It gives me great joy to see you understand and see my protection of you, that you were out there among many dangerous things and I brought every one of you back alive because until I say you die, you don't die. And for you to get that, brings joy and comfort to your heart. And I relish in that. I, I see that. I want that for you. But I want to do a reset here. I want to redirect your joy back to your standing before me in heaven. Because in heaven you will experience the power of God and the protection of God forever. There are no erasers. Once your name is written in the book, there are no erasers in the old world that can remove your name from the book. And here's why. It's not written in ink. It's written in blood. And when the blood dries, it dries forever. It's eternal. The scriptures tell us there is no forgiveness of sins except for the shed blood of Christ. The greatest miracle you and I will ever see and experience is our own salvation that connects us with God in Christ. It's why C.S. Lewis wrote this phrase that's in your notes. Joy is the serious business of heaven. So we see the disciples' joy because they were experienced divine power, divine protection, and divine, a divine promise, the gospel. Is that encouraging? Jesus says, those are things that bring joy. But then he makes this transition here, Luke does, and now it begins to tell us what brought Jesus joy. When I think of that, I think primarily what you and I are familiar with, what you and I know, is that Jesus wasn't necessarily a man of joy, but most of what we see is Jesus was a man of sorrows. Even just a few weeks ago in Luke 9, 51, we see this increasingly man of sorrows, life of sorrows being portrayed when it's Luke tells us that Jesus set his face resolutely toward the cross to what? Die. Isaiah 53 gives us the title for Jesus, one of his titles, the man of sorrows. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, 
and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. And he was despised and we esteemed him not. The world was made by him, but the world hated him. So add to that this impending sorrow and sadness that Jesus' life portrayed, the reality of this life, this side of heaven. Add to that him, he knows he's about to be separated from his father for the first time in all of eternity at his death. But here, in a very unique passage, we're so familiar with the light man of sorrows, but here we get to see the man of joy. Now, what do we know about Jesus and joy? We know, he, as I quoted earlier, he has a future joy mindset. Hebrews 2, for the joy set before him. We know John 17 tells us that he experienced joy in his relationship with the Father. But as I read this week, I learned something that I never knew. This is the only text in the Bible, folks. The only text in the Bible that speaks about the joy of Jesus Jesus rejoicing in his life on earth. How about that? Pretty unique. Why did Jesus rejoice? Reason one, because his father was experiencing great pleasure. What motivated this joy? Verse 21 says, In that same hour, as he heard the report of the ministry and soul-saving mission of the disciples, it says Jesus' response to that, to all that had been going on as the, as the 72 went out, Jesus' response to that was literally overjoyed or overflowed with joy. One writer, I love this, he said, this is eschatological jubilation. <laughs> Write that down. Because of the sovereign pleasure that he saw his father experiencing. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. Do you hear that? For such was your gracious will. Was, was such was your gracious pleasure. <laughs> Jesus is saying all that was happening that we have seen here in Luke pleased the Father. In this particular verse 21, what pleased the Father was that the Father hid himself from some and revealed himself to others. And Jesus saw that and rejoiced out loud because of it. Hang with me here. The great joy that Jesus is experiencing in the te only text that we see this kind of rejoicing from Jesus comes because of his affirmation of what the Father is doing. It is an out loud and proud praise. This is what the Father has intended from all of eternity past. His redemptive plan for the world is getting done. What had been planned from the past is now taking place just as the father planned it. Now notice here, he called his father what? The Lord of heaven and earth. 
the sovereign, supreme God of the entire universe is his Father. The one in charge of everything in heaven and on earth, and the Father is doing what pleases himself. Think about that. You and I, usually, when we do what pleases ourselves, it gets twisted in our own sinfulness and selfishness, does it not? But because God is perfect, the Father can do exactly what brings pleasure to himself and be perfectly sinless. Meaning, the mission is going exactly as planned, and this plan included this, to hide it from some and to reveal it to others. Jesus says here more specifically, to hide it from the wise and the intelligent. And to reveal it, to reveal himself to the little children. Now, this isn't a contrast between educated and uneducated. It is a contrast between being proud and humble. It is the one who recognizes that they bring nothing to the table that can actually come to God's table. Jesus is experiencing great joy in how his father set this up. Because if God was able to be found or accessible by those who are wise in their own mind, by those who are intelligent, by those who are sharp, by those who have it together, then those people would be sick in pride and they would boast in their own mind and wisdom and intelligence. Dr. Daryl Bach, who we've quoted many times going through Luke, as uh, one of the world's foremost experts on the book, says this, Jesus is delighted at the highest state of emotional satisfaction, this joy, because the Father has chosen to hide the greatness of himself, the Son and the Holy Spirit, from the wise and reveal the greatness of himself and the Son and the Spirit to the humble. Just a note, once you and I come to Christ, this ought to be a great, a great stake in the ground of how you and I grow. Humility causes growth. Trusting in our own wisdom and how we think and feel takes us out every time. So, Jesus is experiencing great joy because of the Father's pleasure. Secondly, because of the Son's position. Look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here Jesus is finding great joy in how his sovereign Father, sovereign Father who is in charge of everything, has handed over supreme and total power to himself. Once again, Jesus is finding joy and that the Father handed over the redemptive plan of God to his Son. Now, when you and I are given complete power, <laughs> it doesn't go good. But here again, this is joyous to Jesus. He is finding great joy in the role that he has in his Father's redemptive plan. There's nothing that is not handed over to Jesus. The Father so perfectly trusts the Son that he hands over to him the very plan of God to save sinners from every race, tribe, and tongue. 
I love how John writes in John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So the Son, Jesus, has been placed in a position by the Father in order to bring the purpose of the Father to completion. And the Father is in charge of revealing the Son, and the Son is in charge of revealing, and the Son is in charge of revealing the Father. Here's what I know. You and I may be able to spell the word God, but we can't know God unless this text tells us we come through the what? Son. And we can't know the Father unless we come through, or we can't know the Son unless we come through the Father. There's so much there. Father, Son, co-equal since eternity past. I have just skimmed the surface. But here's what I do love. I do love as we think about the son's position that the father has given him, this co-equalness, Revelation 5 gives us a beautiful picture of who this son is. The apostle John writes these words. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep. No more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. The son's position before the father. He's the only one worthy. Jesus finds great joy in doing exactly what the father tells him to do. Let me just pause there for a minute for us. We go back to John Piper's statement. It's a powerful statement. I can't remember it. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied or experiencing joy in him. Me and you will find the most glorious joy more than anything else, more than a high-paying job, more than a new truck, more than new camouflage, more than any kind of money, we'll find more joy when we are doing exactly what the Father has called us to do. And when we are being exactly who he's called us to be. Think about that. Lastly, as I wrap up, Jesus' third reason for joy was the disciples' privilege. So here's what Jesus does now. He turns to, it says, the disciples, and he turns privately, meaning there were probably other people around that, that, that names weren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so he pulls this larger group together, and he says privately here, he tells them, 
I am experiencing so much joy to see you know what you know, to see you see what you see, to see that you have heard what you've heard. Folks, many a prophet and many a king had longed their entire lives to see and to know and to hear what you now see and know and hear. And it's finally here, all that the prophet spoke of, all that God said he would do from Genesis 3 forward, it's finally here, and you, you know it. What a privilege. You need to understand, we need to understand as Christ follows, what a privilege it is for you and I to see the whole story unfold. That brings Jesus great joy. I love what 1 Peter 5 says as we wrap up concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, but us. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Things into which angels long for. Jesus says to his disciples, oh, man, my heart is so full of joy because you now see, you now hear, and you now know that the kingdom of God is hand. And that I am the Christ. And all that God said is going to take place just like he said it's going to take place. I want to ask you this morning to ask the question, so what? To sort of do a joy inventory. If you're like me, I can find my joy in such temporary pleasures. I nearly lost my joy yesterday when Clemson only won by one point. You know what I mean? And so take a minute to ask yourself, Lord, help me understand biblical joy so that I may walk in faithfulness and steadiness of joy no matter what the circumstances of life bring. Take a minute to ask that question.